Good Wednesday morning. I'm your host, Craig Flood, recording from Boise, Idaho. And today, John is going to be talking about education. Later today, as of this recording, he is going to be starting classes and teaching at Augustine College. I want to talk to you about teaching. Uh, I start teaching this to, this afternoon, my first class with the Augustine College group. And uh, the way I do it is not the traditional way. One of the things that has bothered me over the years is how ineffective most education is. Uh, you can ask anyone. Tell me anything, any single sentence or idea that you got from a teacher that you remember explicitly now. And of course, it, it's negligible, and particularly in university where uh, we have moved for various reasons, mainly laziness on the part of the teaching uh, community, to a kind of education in which uh, students go to a class and all sorts of so-called facts are passed on, and then a few weeks later uh, they are asked to write them down without looking at their notes. And I call it the memorize and dump system, particularly with highly technical things like I had to teach biochemistry to medical students, and that is my best description of a waste of time, uh, because biochemistry is like learning a new language. It can't be done in six weeks unless you happen to be a genius of some sort. So most of them will not remember any of their biochemistry. You ask your doctor, does he remember any biochemistry that he was taught in medical school? And he might say, oh, I could probably do the Krebs cycle, uh, which is the main energy transduction system in the body. And uh, the only problem with that is, of course, it has no practical consequences at all. Uh, because if you don't have a Krebs cycle, you're dead. Uh, the bits of biochemistry that are compatible with being alive and might be corrected are a very small print in most cases, except in some of them like diabetes where he he doesn't remember all the biochemistry he couldn't give you an account of which proteins insulin modifies and how the insulin receptor works and all that that isn't the way he does it it's done on a protocolized approach which is another problem because it's done for bureaucratic reasons only the things that are measured matter and of course that's simply not true about human beings the, the things that cannot be measured are very important, and a bureaucrat can't handle that, so they hate it, and they're trying to make medicine run on the basis of measurement. Now, I can illustrate what I'm talking about very easily. Uh, um, a few years ago, actually, I was at a conference, and a gentleman sat down opposite me uh, during coffee and said, do you remember me? And it took me a moment or two, and then, then I did make contacts, and he said, good. He's a guy who's worked most of his life with the indigent poor communities in the States, uh, uh, a deeply committed Christian. But uh, he's been listening to the sorts of things I was saying. He said, oh, an illustration for you. He said, uh, this week, actually, uh, I was doing family practice, which I had to fill in the Medicare stuff to get paid. And uh, a black woman came in who was overweight with diabetes and hypertension 
and I'm allowed about a few minutes to deal with that. Uh, and if I take longer, I get docked from my income. But I realized this woman was intelligent and uh, uh, what was happening is a standard phenomenon because the bureaucrats will, get, will pay you the money in that situation if you measure the blood pressure, weigh the patient, um, measure the blood sugar and the glycosylated hemoglobin. Uh, and once you've done that, you've got your money. But that isn't a very good idea. Because the way it works is that every if the blood sugar is up or the glycosylated hemoglobin is up, you increase the insulin, and they'll check that you've done that, or the whatever substitute for insulin you're using. But that, as well as lowering the blood pressure, increases their appetite. So very shortly they gain weight, which puts up their blood pressure and their blood sugar again. So and they're heavier than they were. Uh, the bureaucrats don't look at their weight very much because they, they, that would upset them if they really started thinking about it. You can see you've got a vicious cycle. The blood pressure and the blood sugar will get worse if you gain weight. But this, the substances you use to treat insulin, that, uh, to treat the diabetes, increase appetite. So unless you make some really serious attempt to deal with that, you won't make progress. So he talked to this woman, showed her what was happening, and said, it's really about lifestyle. Uh, you have got to find a way to change your habits of living so that you actually lose some weight. And then you could even get off your uh, insulin substitute treatment and get off your treatment for hypertension, but it's not going to be easy and you're going to need some support. And of course, that discussion went on for about half an hour and this lovely woman, as she left, said, Doctor, you're not going to get paid for what you've done for me this morning, are you? And he said, no, I'm probably going to be punished. That's the world where measurement has become more important than the people the measurements are supposed to serve. That's frightening. Education was meant to lead you into how to live better. We started Augustine College some 25 years ago, uh, having spent five years before that reading together because we had watched young people arrive at university with a faith from a somewhat naive background and lose their faith, their mind, and their virginity in random order in the first year. That's what university does. And now nobody who cares about their children can think that that's a good idea. We didn't think it was a good idea. We didn't know what to do about it. We knew that going to Bible school actually made it worse because then there you're taught that the Bible is inerrant and authoritative. And so you come quoting scripture, chapter and verse, to people who, who hate it. That is not a good idea. Or you might as well have a target on your chest. You made yourself a victim for somebody who's much more fluent with language. I mean, that's what the elite are. They're very good at language. They don't make things do things, the vast majority of them. But they can make a fool of you 
quite easily at first sight. Then you have to go away and think about it. So we read everything we could find on the nature of education from the Greeks to Alistair MacIntyre in the 20th century, and that's the basis of the Augustan College program. We realized that what we needed to do is teach them how we got to here in intellectual terms. Where did the ideas come from? Who did they come from? What were the consequences? How long does it take for these changes to occur? Are they all good or are they bad? And how do you make those judgments? So uh, this is an educational program with a purpose. And the purpose is that you should solidify your faith because that's a good outcome. And we can assume that it's not going to inhibit the development of society because if you look at the people who made the major contributions to the Western way of living, which is the way that has increased the, uh, the money in the world and taken vast numbers of people out of poverty in the last century, it all is dependent ultimately on the Judeo-Christian story. The world population was hardly changing from the time of Christ till the late uh, 1800s. It was only as the, evil, the Industrial Revolution got underway that we started to create new money. We weren't even aware that we were doing that. When we went off the gold standard, nobody knew what was going to happen. But gold was only a substitute for something much deeper. And there was a great deal of psychology in the market and elsewhere, but it was the creation of things, the making of things that needed money for it, all the things to go around. And the spin-off was that people got better over time. I mean... I wouldn't want to have lived in the early part of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, my grandfather was poor, but a brilliant craftsman. My dad was poor for most of my life. When I was small, we were living on $20 a week. I didn't know we were poor because I was loved, fed, watered, clothed. Uh, I didn't earn more than $2,000 a month until I had done two full years of medicine as a doctor. That's not a lot of money. The, the, the growth in population that was beginning at that time is also huge. Uh, the world has been changed dramatically by what happened with the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution. Uh, now we're going to have to deal with it at a much deeper level. So the first thing I do with the students is to point out to them that real learning makes a permanent change. And the way that I will start this afternoon is I will tell them about how the most important exercise in my own life in that direction as a Christian was uh, how the Sermon on the Mount was forced upon me and I had to engage with it more seriously than I ever done with scripture before. And it, it transformed my whole life. In order to illustrate what I'm getting at, I can do it with you because I can see your face. Um, and I can explain it to the audience. You're a Christian. You have heard Ephesians 1 and 2 preached upon or read yourself or by others many times, right? Many times. Uh, you could... Yeah, you can, yes, join in this. But 
If I asked you now, without opening the Bible, to tell me the argument that Paul lays out in the first two chapters of Ephesians, you would struggle, wouldn't you? I would, because I cannot see your praises that I have printed up and posted on my wall over there. But it still hasn't got it. You've made the first step. But, of looking it, through your praises, but yeah, no. Yeah. That, and that's good. That's when I teach them about a praisey, how you do it. And that does make a difference. I mean, you know there's a structure to it. and You could actually, if you worked hard, it'd be an interesting experience to go through, get some of that back already. But once you've got the praisey, you can go look at it and say, yes, okay, uh, I can go from there now. Um, but for me, Ephesians 1 and 2, uh, well, the whole chunks of Scripture that I've done that way that are available to me immediately. There are also some scientific papers that I can do the same thing with, uh, and there are some books I can do the same thing with. with. But that's an effort that you have to make. And if you do, that's real education. So the first thing I'm going to ask them to do is write a precy. But I won't tell them that. I say, say, I want you to distill Paul's argument. They will write a summary, um, and then we will have a discussion next week about the difference between a summary and a precy. A summary is what you think the text contains after you've read it. A precy has nothing of you in it. It is simply the text with some things removed and others highlighted, so to speak. And the better you get at it, uh, the more you get the structure of the author's argument. Hmm. And you can't, when you start doing that, you can't miss the fact uh, that you missed many times, that three times in the first chapter, Paul says, for the praise of his glory. And you start looking at, oh, wow, what's that all about? Well, he says, before... You were, I knew you, and I made you for the praise of the glory of God before you were made. And you are now to live to the praise of the glory of God. And the whole of your life in heaven will be in praise of the glory of God. Not in some sort of, I'm forcing you to praise, but in giving you the eyes to see. That is so amazing. That's the kind of praise heaven is full of. It's going to take forever to explore the, the nature of the love of God and his care for us, etc., etc. So Paul is on a high in Ephesians, which is why I choose it, because the rhetoric of the first uh, chapter is just astonishing. It's an incredible piece of writing. I'm looking forward to meeting the guy who was trying to write it down, did write it down. It must have been hard work. Uh, he probably had to shout stop every now and again. Uh, but that's real learning. And we don't do it anymore. That's why with the, the, the Middle Ages who were deeply Christian when they started schools, they said, okay, what's special about children? I mean, Jesus loved children and he made them central because of their humility and their honesty. They tell the truth. Uh they have difficulty in separating fantasy from truth, but it's their truth at that point uh, in a subjective sense. But uh, and one has to work those things out. But they said, oh, there's one thing your kids have got is a memory that's better than yours because our memory is starting to go downhill by about the age of five. 
But in those first five years, I think they remember everything they've heard and seen. And with the right stimulus, it will come back. You, you know that when you read children's books to them and you get bored with the book and you try and shorten it, they tell you immediately, no, read it properly. They want books read to them. They already know. That's interesting. They want it. To, they think it's important. They want to hear it again. So the first thing the, the medieval said is, uh, we need some grammar. The things that need to be memorized, times tables. Uh, road learning is not an insult. It's what small children want and what they need. And of course, if you know your times tables, then you can play mental arithmetic games to see who's fastest, seven sevens, is it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you should do that at the dining room table. You'll find out whether you've got a mathematician on your hands at least, but the others will also, uh, they'll get good at it and they'll certainly be better than you. Uh, if you have to stop for a moment, they don't. It just comes, bang. Uh, that's why you should teach them to memorize not verses, but my mother brilliantly taught me to memorize chunks. That's much better. Uh, only when you've done that, you then move on to teach logic, which we don't teach at all. Uh, you've got the material to work on, and now you can do the next bit and find out whether it's logically coherent. This week, I have uh, read this book, uh, Between Heaven and Hell. Uh, by Peter Kraft, I should say, reread for the nth time. Uh, it's a new edition, slightly expanded. Um, a book that he wrote in a few days. It was a gift from God. Um, and it's a conversation between uh, Aldous Huxley, Jack Kennedy, and C.S. Lewis, all of whom died on the same day. And so he brings them together in limbo. They're neither in heaven nor in hell to discuss life and meaning. And, of course, Lewis is the main protagonist as he uses his logical skills uh, to make the other two think more carefully than they have done before. And it's funny and it's clever. And you will read it in an afternoon. It's about 100 pages of dialogue. It's trialogue, actually. Um, and they're wonderfully done. I mean, he begins roughly with them realizing... They don't know where they are. And Kennedy says, where the hell are we? And Lewis says, basically, not there, I trust. doesn't smell like that. Uh, and they realize they're in limbo. They're neither in heaven nor hell. Uh, and they start talking about what matters most when you reach that stage. And uh, Kennedy has a view that he's very pragmatic uh, but Lewis quickly convinces himself that humans can't live without faith. The only difference is that you didn't know you were exercising faith. Um, it's beautifully done, but it illustrates uh, real education that's going on there. There's uh, an acceptance of stuff that's been memorized that all three of them know, and then this logic which both... Kennedy and all the Suxley uh, don't know enough of, and Lewis does, and he leads them. And they see the consequences of their lives. I mean, it, it's interesting that Lewis died peacefully and gracefully. Uh, Kennedy was assassinated, and Holder Suxley died a 
an overdose of LSD. Uh, that's representing three ways of looking at the world. So the education system that we've designed, it's evolved. Initially, we didn't want even to divide up by subject, but we were forced to do that so they could get some credits where they went to next because it should all be integrated, really. Uh, the idea that you can write a curriculum as though it would come to life in a meaningful way, uh, it's nonsense at one level. It's good. I mean, the, the point of curriculum is for you to be able to say, well, we covered most of that, but some of it, I just don't know how to teach that yet. Because although I've done it myself, it hasn't come to life in a way that makes me capable of doing it as a professor should. And what fits in the category of real education, you don't need notes for. I mean, you might have a rough sketch of your lecture, but you're talking to young people who are just beginning. You need to be watching them, uh, having eye contact, knowing, is this getting through? Do I need to illustrate that some more? How fast can I go? Et cetera, et cetera. It's a very different world than what we have now. Now, I went to school where the classes were small enough, and in fact, the teachers did interact with us uh, to a much greater degree than they do now. I mean, teaching 800 people, that's ridiculous in a lecture. Yeah. Now, what they can get there, uh, certainly the, 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 they wouldn't, it wouldn't be the best way to get information across, but it's actually very good to see somebody who's really good engage with a topic that they know inside out and backwards. It's fascinating. Uh, it's astonishing. Uh, and you say, I wish I could do that. That's wonderful. That's education. Now you've, you've lit a fire. Uh, so that's what should happen in those 800 groups. Is, uh, that should happen. Lewis, when he was lecturing in Oxford, had a booming voice. And the porter would open the door and he would start his lecture as he walked to the lectern. The last words would be spoken as he went out. And it didn't stop all the way through. Um, that's doing something quite different. Sally and I remember very well one evening in, we went to hear uh, the great French cellist Paul Tortelier play a concert. But Paul Tortelier loved students and he was in Oxford. So I don't know, the, the concert ended somewhere around nine and then he started talking to the students. And the whole thing went till 11 o'clock at night. He enjoyed it. The students absolutely loved it and nobody was there would forget that experience. Yeah. That's, that's really what should happen, and most people have never had an experience like that. And have you ever been in church when you didn't want a sermon to finish? Hopefully, yes. But so that's what I'm hoping to get started with this afternoon. Uh, the We will get as far as uh, talking about what is science, please define, they will try, and then the outcome of that is, of course, nobody has a watertight, watertight description of what science is. None of them cover the, the whole thing. And the famous comment is, I can't tell you what science is, but I can certainly recognize it when I see it. 
tacit knowledge again. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed. If you think about it and you know somebody who would be interested in going to Augustine College or maybe is in their first year of college and it's just not going the way they thought it would, maybe they could consider a leap year or a gap year where they take some time off and head up to Canada and spend it with John and his teacher friends up there. See you guys next week. Mm -hmm.